0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. org. All right, so let's uh, let's jump right in, and I'm, I'm going to try to keep this uh, very succinct because we've got a lot of things to talk through. And so, just know that, like um, the the broad brushstrokes with which I am painting the gospel in this sermon, uh, really are are helped and enhanced by hopefully every single sermon that we preach week in and week out, in that this, this gospel, this, this good news, that being what gospel means, um, is really and truly um, what defines us, what shapes us, what encourages us, what strengthens us, what sustains us, what saves us, right? Um, and so just know that, right? Um, just know that. So let's jump right in, right? This is Jesus um, in Matthew 28. So the very end of the book of Matthew, right? The book of Matthew is just a a recounting, a retelling of the story of Jesus from Matthew's perspective. And so at this point, we're we're at the very end of Jesus's life. and, And depending on what you believe about Jesus, right? There's a few things that have happened very recently prior to this. In fact, just one chapter over, we see Jesus this man who we believe to be the very son of God, equal with God, not only experience a humiliating earthly physical death, but we also see him experience the rejection of God the Father because at that moment, he bore our sins. And then as Matthew recounts for us, we see that three short days later, that same Jesus, that same man, that same God, Rose in victory over the penalty and the weight and the depth of our sin, and was raised over and above all things. In fact, um, in fact, Philippians two tells us that because of his obedience in that, that his name will be exalted above all other names. So, when we're talking about the gospel, in its in its most sort of. Uh, condensed sense, that is what we are talking about. We're talking about this man, Jesus, who we believe to have been equal with God, the son of God, who was sent to earth to rectify something that had gone entirely wrong. And in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death, he has now given us away a means to have a right or restored relationship with God. Because our record is now removed from us, placed upon Jesus, and exchanged for his perfect record. That's that's what we're saying in, in in the most micro, the most condensed way that we can say it. And that's when we arrive at the end of all of that, at the end of that work, at the end of that what we believe to be a historic event. Jesus then says this, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, now because that authority has been given to me, here's what I would have you to do. But I don't know about, about you, when it, when it comes to me, like I want to know what gives Jesus the right to make that claim. <laughs> In that, like, so in, in all of the rulers in all of history, with the exception of a, of a small few, um, that's a very bold and audacious claim, especially coming from a, a homeless Galilean who was just a few short days earlier um, condemned by the government of Rome. It's a bold claim. Where does he get the right to make that claim that all authority in heaven? and on earth has been given to me and i would say the the reason that he is able to say that and for that to be true of jesus is because of the gospel it's because of what he accomplished on our behalf in that moment on the cross and in his resurrection victory over what took place on the cross And so if that's what gives him the reason to say that, I want us to understand, again, the fullness as much as we can in this brief few moments, the fullness of what it was that Jesus actually did. Because I think a lot of us, if we've been sort of familiar with church or or we've been in a church with any kind of regularity, we've typically heard the gospel, I think, in individualistic terms. Now, some of that is because we're speaking to ourselves, right? And we, we belong to a culture that, if nothing else, is rampantly individualistic, right? And so when we talk about the gospel, it is often, there is, there is problem, there is pain, there is difficulty in your life, and Jesus can rectify that for you so that you can live a more fulfilled, a more personally peaceful, hopeful, enjoyable existence. And while, and while that is an aspect, a facet of the, the, the beautiful diamond that is the gospel, it is only one minor part. I'm going to try to define, to try to give you handles for that, right? So we believe that, that there is a, a micro sense to the gospel in the sense that the gospel has real life implications for the individual person. Like in your life, What Jesus came to do was to accomplish reconciliation between you and God personally, individually, in a real, tangible way. That that God is holy, that we as individuals, individually, are responsible for our sin, guilty before God, but that Jesus came to make that guilt go away, to remove that guilt from us. And now we in response live our individual lives towards and through and for his glory. But there's also a macro sense, and this is and this is what we mean when when we're talking about our mission statement, which I'll, I'll share in just a minute. Here's what i what I mean by there's a there's a macro sense. So yes, the work of Jesus is broadly applicable to our individual lives, but at the same time, what Jesus came to do is so much bigger than just you. In in a world that tells you, in a country that tells you, in a culture that tells you it is all about you, have it your way. We cannot make the mistake of reading the gospel with that lens only. Because the way the Bible starts and the way the Bible ends have much to say about what God is doing universally, right? So God is doing work individually in us, but he's also doing a universal work, a a universal work that began with a good and perfect creation that we ruined, but that in that God's plan had always been to work redemption, And so even in our fallenness, God sends his son Jesus not to just rectify the individual, but to actually create a new people, a people that would actually live the way we were always intended to live. And that creation will culminate in that place. That's what Revelation is all about. For all the weird imagery and all the things that we have questions about, the truth of what Revelation is actually preaching to us is simply this, that there will be a place comprised of people who have been finally and fully perfected by the work of Jesus in such a way that tears will not be anymore, crying will not be anymore, death will not be anymore, sickness will be no more, personal offense between one another will be no more because we will all be united under the identity of who God is and what He's done and our identity underneath the person and work of Jesus. That is the new heaven, the new earth, that is the redemption, the final restoration that God is working, not just in your individual life, but in the whole of creation, that all, it tells us, all nations, right, that there will be a contingent from each distinct people group in all of the world that will come together and they will worship God for who he is. He's working something magnificent, something large, something that history has always been careening towards in that the gospel was never God's plan B. So it wasn't like, well, let's just try this whole humanity experience. Oh, they blew it. We, sh- we should probably figure something out about that. But that God in history is working redemption. So this is what we say. When, this is our mission statement at Sojourn, if you're, if you're curious. Our mission statement is, and it's going to sound purposefully um, open-ended. Joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. Joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. I recognize that that's an incomplete sentence, okay? It was done so purposefully. (laughs) Joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. So this is what we mean when we say that, right? Is that we want to join God in the story that he has been weaving way before our story ever began. In fact, it's the story that encompasses every other narrative. The American narrative, the uh, Western European narrative, the, all, all culture, all the earth, all peoples, all creation whether they like it or not, is falling underneath, falling into, playing their part in this greater story. That's what we mean when we say historic. So not historic in just the sense that we believe it happened, but historic in the sense that we believe it defines everything that's taking place in our reality. And then work of redemption, meaning we really believe. In and through the person and work of Jesus, God is working to redeem for Himself a people, and that—that that is what the really the whole Bible could could be summed up in in this. That God's intent has always been to have a people to Himself, both to whom and through whom He reveals Himself. That was the beginning, and that will be the end. It's cohesive. We, and we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, want to join the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in that historic work of redemption. Now, I had an aside here, but I'm going to skip it because I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> um, so, if that is the gospel, if that is what God is doing in the world, if that is what our ultimate reality is, whether we believe Jesus is who he says he is or or not, if that is the the, the tangible reality that is taking place that we find ourselves wrapped up in, what does the church do with that gospel? What's our role? Right, in this grand story in which Jesus is our hero, God is the author, right, and the Spirit is busy about enacting and seeing this come to fruition, what is our role? Well, the Bible tells us that because of this gospel, because of this good news, because of this redeeming work that Jesus has done, that actually now we, those of us who believe in Jesus, those of us who, uh, who believe that his work was effective for us, that we're actually now a family. That we actually now not only belong to God, but that we belong to one another because God's intent was always not to have a person, but to have a people to himself, both to whom and through whom he reveals himself. I mean, it's wild, right? That's the conclusion that that Paul ultimately comes to in the book of Ephesians, right? So in Ephesians chapter two, we read that great truth that that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now by God's grace, we have been made alive alive. We've been made alive. And at the very end of that chapter, this is what it tells us is the implication for for you and for me, those of us who are followers of Jesus. Through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, get this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the gospel. In whom, that being Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we don't have time to get into all this, but guys, this is amazing. Because here's the reality, before Jesus came, right, the people of Israel being that people both to whom God revealed himself and through whom God purposed to reveal himself to the world, they, in order to, to see, in order to experience God's presence, were required to go into the temple. And in order to get into the temple, there was all kinds of ritual cleansing sacrifices and offerings that you had to make in order to get in there. And there was one place that was reserved for only one person, only the high priest could go in there. Because it was so holy, it was so sacred, there was no chance that if you went in there, you would make it out alive. And yet, because Jesus is the perfect offering, because Jesus went through all of the ritual cleansing, because Jesus was obedient where we were disobedient, now actually that veil, that place has been torn apart. And not only can we be in the presence of God, but now the church is actually the place where God dwells. The place where God dwells, the place where Him in His revealed Word dwells. So here's the thing. If Jesus, in Matthew 28, 18, not only makes a bold claim to authority, but has a right to make that bold claim about His authority, what do we do? we should probably heed what comes next, right? Because His authority has not just been leveraged for our salvation, although that is wonderful and glorious, glorious good news. It's also been leveraged towards this end, right? 19 says this, Go therefore, so because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you always until the end of the age so how does jesus leverage his authority first foremost he leverages it on our behalf right that's what ephesians 2 is all about it's it's by grace we are saved through faith not of works so that none can boast But then it says this, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. In the same way, Jesus leveraged his authority on behalf of his disciples, but then he also gives them something to do. There's an indicative reality, meaning who the disciples are. They're disciples, they're followers of Jesus, they're bought, redeemed men of God. But there's also an imperative sense of who they are, which is because you are that, this is what you do. And ultimately what we see is that followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus, if we want to use his words, disciples of Jesus make disciples. We reproduce what we are. Now, if we've ever, if we've been a part of the church for long, then, um, or even if we just took sort of a cursory glance at the, at the broader church in, in America, we, we've probably seen that there's, there's a lot of sort of fear built up around like the church is losing, you know, losing people in droves. Like people are walking away from the church in, in greater numbers than they ever have. And here's ultimately what I think the problem is. Is that many of us are, are disciples of something other than Jesus. Maybe we're disciples of a certain political party. (laughs) Maybe we're disciples of a certain news station. Maybe we're disciples of a certain philosopher or philosophy. Maybe we're disciples of a certain way of, uh, of running an economy, right? Maybe we're disciples of you name it, portfolios, retirement options, certain car brands, But what disciples of Jesus do is they make disciples of Jesus. So how can we tell, right? How can we tell, one, if we, if we really are disciples, and then, two, how can we make sure that, we, that we're effectively doing what God has called us to do, right? Well, Jesus, again, in John 13, says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is what's crazy, right? This is the the glorious good news of the gospel is that, look, uh, all of us have read the, the Ten Commandments and maybe even you've taken the time, the painful journey through Leviticus. And you saw all of those things and you're like, my gosh, like I've broken... All of these, you know. And even if I haven't, it tells us that if I've broken one, I've broken all of them anyway. And because of Jesus, all of that law is fulfilled. He lived it. He did it perfectly. It tells us that, that, that he did it in such a way that God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He did it for us. And now in that place, he gives us this one commandment. This one commandment, love one another. Love one another. So what role does the church have to play in this whole crazy thing, big story that God is weaving? think if nothing else i mean the, the whole bible is evidence that this is impossible but i'm just going to use this this one particular verse from jesus himself since uh, we like what he says and n- not often what the other guys say you cannot be you cannot be a lone ranger christian and be an obedient christian at the same time because apart from the church You have no context in which to love other Christians, which is the new command our authoritative Savior has given us. You can't do it. You cannot do it. And look, this is why, this is why we say, like, the church is a people to belong to, right? Not just an event to attend, because look, uh, there's not a whole, like, I I love you guys, and I'm sure y'all gave each other hugs and handshakes and everything like that during the greeting time, but like, there's not a whole lot of like you know, love being expressed tangibly right now. You're listening to me talk, which maybe is loving in that you're suffering through that. Right? But it's in the life, in life, Christians being Christian together that we are not only called to love one another, but we're actually afforded the opportunity to do so. And and Jesus tells us that when we do that, that that's how they'll know that we're disciples of Jesus. That that's how the invisible God who became visible to us in Jesus will now become visible in the here, in the now, is through this people behaving in this way. Disciple-making happens in the context of the local church. So, if this is our reality, right, how, how do we ensure that these things are taking place at sojourn? right? Because I think up until this point, hopefully, up until this point, any Christian in the room, whether you belong to a church in, in China, right, could agree with these things in that in that Jesus is who he says he is that he's done what he has said he's done that the church has a real place and part to play because we are the redeemed people of God through whom the message of re- the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished is now a message that we are responsible for if you read second corinthians chapter 5 hopefully we can all agree on that right but how do we do that uniquely here at Sojourn, right? Again, understanding that it's not necessarily the way, but it's a way that we can be faithful to doing what Jesus has called us to do. Well, here's, let me, let me uh, define it for you, right? We said the mission, state or mission statement earlier, which is what we do. We join the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. And now I'm gonna give you our, our vision statement particularly with regards to the gospel, to, to making disciples, right? So one portion of it, we'll walk through the remainder the next couple of weeks. But the vision statement is how we hope to see that happen, right? So the mission never changes. The vision of how that mission happens, that's, that can, I don't care, right? We, we can change it tomorrow if it, reaches, if it reaches people for Jesus, right? Mission stays the same. The vision is flexible. But this is what we say right now. This is straight from the website. I'll just read it. So joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption, we hope to see the people of God united under their identity in Jesus, making disciples of their neighbors by building relationships, exposing them to the Christian community, and sharing the gospel with them in word and in deed. Now here's the thing. So we we just gave ourselves three handles, right? We just gave our, our, ourselves three practical ways in which we can measure whether or not we are being faithful to what we believe the Lord has called us to do. What do we do to make disciples? We build relationships with people. We expose those relationships to the Christian community and we share the gospel in, in word and in deed in that context. You see, here's the thing. I mean, uh, the American church has, been, uh, has become all too enamored with, with fruitfulness at the expense of faithfulness. And what we want to do is we want to put that in its right place. We believe faithfulness leads to real fruitfulness. But even when it doesn't, just read Hebrews 11. Sometimes it doesn't. Read the whole chapter. Get to the end there. Right? Even when it doesn't, we can, we can take measure and we can find comfort in the fact that we're being faithful. that's how we measure that. Now, let me, let me say this. That kind of happens on, on, on two distinct levels, right? Because I think when we think of making disciples, we think of, all right, we're going to go out, we're going to find that person that doesn't know Jesus, we're going to tell them about him, and then bam, it's all like a, you know, that's it. It's done. I, I've done my responsibility. And yet, um, I don't know about you, but me, as a Christian in the room, I, I fully recognize that I have not reached like the, the end of the line when it comes to sanctification, meaning, meaning being like Jesus. <laughs> i got a long way to go. And look, these, these things are just as necessary for me. And here's what I mean by that. So if you're a Christian in the room and you're like, man, you know, I kind of want to hang out like with a church, but I don't know if I want to be involved in all this work stuff, getting my hands dirty, making disciples, whatever this means. But here's the thing. I, like, so me, right, me as your pastor, I need people that are willing to step into my life and build relationship with me. Because it's in that relationship with me that, that, that you're going to discover all kinds of other issues that I can, I can kind of put aside for 35 minutes on a Sunday. I can smile, you know. I can wear an iron shirt, you know. And it all kind of looks put together except for the tattoos, which is just enough edge, you know. <laughs> just enough to make it Palatable. But no, but like that's, that's the context in which you're going to see where I sin. That's the context in which you're going to see where I fail to trust what it is that Jesus has told me is true, not only about me, but about my family and my church. That's the context in which you're going to see those things. Without that relationship, without that relationship, you're going to have little understanding as to how to speak or share the gospel to me, with me. If the gospel is where I find encouragement, Sustaining grace. Strength to go on. Perseverance. Hope. Encouragement. Life. Peace. Hope. Joy. Other than in generalities, you're going to struggle without a relationship with me to to, to be able to to help me along that path in any way. And here's the thing. I, I need not just one, but I need the community. You need the community. You need you need the varying gifts that God has given. Like that's why none of us has all the gifts, right? So that none of us would be self-sustainable. So that we would need each other. And so that when our sin bumped into one another, we would have the kindness, the patience, the love to forgive one another. I need people to love me like Jesus loves me, which Jesus loved me while I was yet a sinner. Jesus loved me when I was probably more of an inconvenience than a help to him. That's what what we all need and it's in that and it's in watching people love us and in getting the opportunity to love others in that kind of way that makes that gospel of Jesus Christ grow so much bigger and have so many wider ranging implications for us that we really begin to grow in our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of what it means to count our life nothing. So that would be a probably a good place to end, but I I think that there's a step further that we take it, and I and I want to pick it out for a couple of reasons because I think one um, it, it's poignant and it's there, but also there's a pastoral element to it. And here's what I would say, right? So Jesus, from his authority, which should be enough for us alone, right, tells us to go and do this, so we should just do it, right? <laughs> He's told us that it's going to happen in the context of the church, so we should get involved in the church. We should, okay, right? we got all that. And we've got how we how we kind of make that happen at Sojourn, the, the practical steps that we take to ensure that that's a reality here. But to what end, right? I mean, really, like beyond the fact that like Jesus said so, because although that is satisfying enough in terms of like from a legal standpoint, that's satisfying enough, but maybe from, you know, from our own emotion, not so much. We're just kind of like, yeah. You know, like we were never happy with that a- answer from our parents. You know? But why, but why, but why? Because I, just, I said so. But ultimately, this is, what, um, this is what it tells us happens, right? Verses 16 and 17, I'm just gonna read them again. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. and when they saw him they worshiped him there's an active worship that comes from seeing Jesus and if you want to know why sojourn exists sojourn exists because we want people to see Jesus All right so I don't want people to see me right or or hear me you kind of have to in this context but ultimately right the words that are coming out of my mouth, the, mouth the, the songs that we are singing, right? The assurance of pardon that we are speaking over one another, the benediction that is spoken over us that we recite and ask the Lord to do. All of those things are in hopes that we would see Jesus. Why do we have neighborhood parishes? In hopes that we would see Jesus, that as we love one another the way Jesus loved us, that we would feel his tangible nearness in and through the people of God, the Spirit of God dwelling among us so that people would see God, and that when they see God, they would worship him. Whether that's someone who's been a believer for years and has grown stagnant in their faith, whether that's a believer that has been a believer for years and has a vibrant faith, but it grows that one extra tick. Or whether it's that person that has never met Jesus, has only heard the cultural narrative about Jesus, has only heard mocking and deriding statements about Jesus, but has never seen Jesus because nobody's reached out and extended, it, extended him to them. Now, here's my final exhortation. I think all of us in the room, myself included, struggle with doubt when it comes to this great, great story in that we're like you know what yeah like that sounds great like a a a place a culmination of history that results in no tears no sickness right you know like it's fa- like yeah we'll just get rid of all that it'll happen right and some of us i think maybe because we have doubts or because we have struggled with some doubts we feel like i don't, I don't know if i can really share that like um I think I'll wrestle with that in private, and then I'll I'll just kind of, I'll show up on Sunday and just be kind of, you know, typically happy. But look at what happens in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now remember, like, remember... Who these people are. It's the 11 disciples. If, you, if you're wondering why there's only 11, come talk to me afterwards. We'll talk about it. Um, but it's the 11 disciples, the people who had seen Jesus up close throughout the entirety of his ministry who are now looking at him in the face after he was crucified three days earlier and they're still going, I don't know. <laughs> like, are you kidding? It says they worshiped him but some doubted. So look, whether you're a Christian in the room this morning with doubts or whether you are not a Christian in the room this morning with doubts, look, Jesus is comfortable with your doubts. And he's going to invite you to taste and see that he's good. Because what's Jesus' response to their doubting? He's like, okay, wh- hold on. We've got to talk about this first and then we'll get to this other stuff because you obviously still don't get it. And if you're if you're not on this train, then you can just get off. Or does he respond with, "All authority, all authority on in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am who I say I am, and because I am who I say I am, you are who I say you are. You are my disciple. Go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name, in the name, in the name of the name of the." teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. So whether your doubt is just intellectual from like a, if God is good and loving, how does he allow cancer? Or or some of Jesus' teachings seem really regressive. Or whether it's an emotional doubt. Where it's like... I just don't know if Jesus can come through on what he says because my life is too painful to be characterized with the word peace. And that's what Jesus says he brings. So I just, I don't know. I don't know if that's a reality. And if we're honest, I think for many of us, it's a combination of the two. We have intellectual and emotional doubt. But the good news of the gospel. And, and the glorious, wondrous nature of the church is that in that context, with the security of the gospel, with the safety of the church, and the time that Jesus gives us to sort through those things, we have everything that we need to walk with one another through our doubts and to see that Jesus will never leave us wanting. And so that is the invitation to you this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, let's walk through our doubts together. knowing that there is a place before Jesus for us to worship him, even with those things in tow. So, that's where I want to end. But we're going to go to the table this morning as a reminder of the glorious good news of the gospel. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll do that.